Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. As you know, for the past few months, we have been making our way through various selected psalms within the Psalter. And today we come to the conclusion of this sermon series as we consider Psalm 139. the end of the reading of this psalm, uh, please read responsively with me in your order of worship as we respond as the people of God by way of confession that the word that we are, that we are reading is the very word of God, the infallible and inerrant word of God. So please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word. The choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eye saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Psalm 139 is essentially David's exposition 
his treatment on the doctrine of God as applied to the life of the Christian. You'll notice that David describes and expounds upon a number of attributes of our God. He speaks about God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, God's omnipotence. God indeed is all-knowing, everywhere present, and all-powerful in both creation and a providence. David, however, does not speak about these divine attributes in a dry or detached manner. Rather, his soul is bursting with doxological praise and wonder as he considers the character of his God. You'll notice in verse 6, David says, such knowledge of God is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And then in verse 14, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Part of our sanctification in this life is growing in a deeper knowledge and understanding of who God is. This is something that we have lost in our day. We live in a very pragmatic day and age, and we tend to think of our sanctification as merely a list of things that we either need to stop doing or start doing. However, Scripture calls us to behold our God. In fact, when you read the sermons of the early church fathers, you notice that they routinely called upon the people of God to adore, to behold the character of their covenant Lord. And so this morning, we are going to behold our God. We are going to consider a number of these attributes that David expounds upon here in Psalm 139. As we do so, our goal is to be able to respond as David responds. To be able to say, wonderful are your works. Your works which illuminate your character, O God. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And so first, we see that our God is uh, our God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. You'll see this in, in verse 1 of Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. David then goes on to expound in a very personal manner God's omniscience. God knows when we sit and when we stand. He knows our thoughts, the thoughts that we are not even conscious of thinking. God knows all of our ways in this life, our coming and our going. God knows the words that we speak even before they're on our lips. This Consideration of God's omniscience leads David to say in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Wonderful in the sense of it's, it's too high, it's, it's unattainable. Now when we speak about God's knowledge, we need to recognize that God's knowledge is, is qualitatively, and not just quantitatively, qualitatively different than our knowledge. It's not as if God has the same knowledge as us, as us, it's just that he has more of it. God's knowledge is of a different quality. One theologian says that God knows 
things not by observation, but from and of himself. The way we ordinarily gain knowledge is through observation, through reflection, through study, through intentional pursuit. Not so with God. God knows things because he is God from and of himself. Consequently, then another theologian says that given God's eternality, the fact that he stands outside of the category of time itself, God knows the end from the beginning in one simultaneous act. There is no progress in the knowledge of God. God just knows from all eternity. Which is why God says through the lips of the prophet Isaiah that as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, God's knowledge, God's knowledge of us can serve as a double-edged sword for us in particular. It can either be terribly frightening or it can be extremely comforting. We know that God's knowledge of us can elicit fear because in verse 7, David speaks about fleeing from the presence of God. So think of, of your knowledge, for those of you, for those of you who are married, think of, of your knowledge of your spouse as an analogy. You know your spouse better than you know anybody. You know your spouse better than anyone else knows your spouse. And because of that deep and intimate knowledge, your affirmations of your spouse are more meaningful than anybody else's affirmations. We tend to shrug off the affirmations of mere acquaintances because we think, would you be saying that if you really knew who I was? Contrastly, because you know your spouse so well, you know their sins, their weaknesses, their insecurities, your words have the power of doing great damage, of causing great hurt. You know exactly what will hurt them the most. And so your knowledge of your spouse can function as a double-edged sword. Well, when we think about God's knowledge of us, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our sins, our shortcomings, our weaknesses. He knows the intentions of our hearts. And so if God affirms us, accepts us, that is indeed extremely comforting if he does this despite his knowledge of who we are. However, based on this knowledge, we all should have a deep and profound sense that we stand under his just judgment. Not that God's going to rashly or emotionally fly off the handle, but that we stand under his just, just judgment. And thus, we should be asking the question, based on this knowledge that God has of us, will God be present in our lives? Based on the knowledge that God has of you, will God be present in your life? We oftentimes fear, when, oftentimes in our earthly relationships, we fear that if, if other people really know who we are, then they might not want to pursue a relationship with us. They might not want to pursue a friendship with us. So we need to ask ourselves, based on God's knowledge of us, will he be present? If he is present, how will he be present? Will he be present in judgment or in grace? Which then leads David to consider God's omnipresence, the fact that God is everywhere present. 
So we see here in verses 7 through 12, David's exposition on God's omnipresence. Now today is Pentecost Sunday, the day which, at least historically speaking, the church has uh, sought to intentionally think about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the New Covenant Church. And here in verse 7, David speaks of the Holy Spirit as being fully God. This Holy Spirit is not merely the kid brother of the members of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is fully and truly God. And here we see David attributing to the Holy Spirit a divine attribute. And what's that divine attribute? The divine attribute of omnipresence. Where can I flee from your spirit? And so what, what does it mean that God is omnipresent? That he is everywhere present? Well, You'll notice that David says that if he were to go to heaven, God is there. And we think here of what David's son, Solomon, said after he constructed the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Well, David goes on, he says, if he goes to the depths of Sheol, to hell, God is there. We should not think of, of hell as, as separation from God or the absence of God. Rather, it's God's presence in judgment and wrath. David says that if he goes to the uttermost parts of the sea or covers himself in a blanket of darkness, God is there. We think here of the words of the prophet Jeremiah, or God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Now at this point, it's important to make a distinction that's oftentimes made as, as theologians think about this attribute of God. Uh, the distinction between God's ontological presence and God's covenantal presence. Uh, the great uh, Reformed theologian Herman Bavink describes this distinction by uh, speaking of the difference between being locally present or ethically present. So imagine your spouse says to you, your spouse who is a foot away from you, you seem really distant. Now your spouse isn't saying that you're locally distant. You're a foot away from each other. Your spouse is saying that you feel relationally or ethically distant. And so David here is saying that God is locally present everywhere. In heaven, in Sheol, in the uttermost parts of the sea. However, the question that we need to consider is how is God present? Is he present in judgment or in grace? So let's connect this back to David's consideration of God's omniscience. We already considered how God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows everything about us, the good things, the bad things. And based on that knowledge, how is God present? Is he present in judgment or is he present in grace? He will be present, but how is he present? And the answer to that question comes from your relationship with David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one 
uh, to whom David himself was, was trusting and hoping in. Now, as I already mentioned, God knows our sins greater than we know our sins. He knows our past sins. He knows all of our future sins that you will commit until the day you die. He knows the sins that you are not even conscious of. They're, that are, uh, that are, are uh, in the recesses of your heart and mind. Now, the purpose for Jesus coming to this earth was to pay God's penalty for all of those sins. The past sins, the future sins, and even the sins that you are not conscious of. Jesus' atonement, Jesus' death was a personal death or atonement. When Jesus drank the cup of his Father's wrath on the cross, your sins were in that cup. When Jesus says, I have come to the earth to do the will of my Father, you were included in that will. When you think about an athlete, a professional athlete who trains every day, hours a day, to get their body in shape, to perfect their skills and talents, what motivates them? What motivates them is, is the, the thought of winning, the thought of a championship, the thought of a gold medal. Well, what motivated Jesus during his earthly ministry was the thought of you, delivering and redeeming you from all of your sins. Think about how outrageous this promise of God is. God promises that in the new covenant, he will remember our sins no more. The omniscient God who is and continues to be all-knowing promises to remember your sins no more. That's the promise we have because we belong body and soul, life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll notice that David continues his reflection upon the doctrine of God as he thinks about God's omnipotence. God is all-powerful. And David here, as he reflects upon the omnipotence of God, he, he doesn't do so in an abstract way. Rather, he speaks specifically of God's power displayed in creation. But not just generically in creation, but personally in his creation. David's creation. Verse 13, we read, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now when David says, you formed my inward parts, he's literally saying, you formed my kidneys. Now that may seem a bit odd to us, but in the Old Testament, this word is deployed Quite often, it refers to the innermost part of who we are, the seat of our personhood. It refers to our soul, our heart. And so, David is saying, you form my soul, you form my heart. But David continues and says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. God not only created us with souls, but also with bodies. In verse 15, David literally says, My bones were not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. God made us with both bodies and souls. And we should not think of the activities that we engage in this life as, as you know, some activities being only bodily activities and some activities only being soulish activities. Everything that we do in this life, we do as body and soul creatures. 
this consideration of the fact that we have a body and soul leads David to say in verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You could literally translate this as, I am awesomely wonderful, David's saying. David's saying, when you reflect upon the intricacy and orderliness of our human physical bodies, when you think about our souls, the fact that we have rationality, the ability to emote, and the innate desire to worship, it should produce awe among us. We indeed are fearfully and wonderfully made. When verse 16, David continues yet further when he says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You catch what David's saying here? David is saying that God has recorded in his book, in his ledger as it were, all of your days while you are yet an unformed substance. This tells us that God created each and every one of us for a purpose. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they may exercise dominion over all of creation. God made mankind for a purpose. To work as he worked. To mirror the character of him in this age. Paul picks up on this idea in Ephesians 2.10 when he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. David is, I mean, excuse me, Paul is saying that God not only has foreordained, sovereignly foreordained our salvation, but he also has sovereignly foreordained every good work that you will walk in. God has sovereignly foreordained every single day in your lifespan before you were yet born. Well, David seems to recognize this reality that God made him for a purpose by the way he concludes this psalm in verse 24. He says, And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Notice the repetition of this word way. David is contrasting yet again these two paths, these two ways, this way of agony or hardship and this way of, of everlasting. This, here, this is a fitting way to conclude this, this sermon series on the Psalms, as you may recall how David began the Psalms in Psalm 1, contrasting these two paths, these two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And, and David here is, is desiring to steer clear from the way of agony, the way of deceit, and desiring, pleading, asking, praying that he would uh, stay unswervingly upon this path, this way of everlasting. And so, congregation, as we here behold our God, as we behold God's omniscience, as we behold God's omnipresence, His omnipotence, we are called to respond by saying with David, such knowledge is too wonderful for us. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you that you have not remained hidden, but you have revealed yourself to us and that you have, in fact, stooped down to our level to lisp in a way that we can understand. We thank you that you are all-knowing, that you are everywhere present, that you are all-powerful, and yet you are 
our Heavenly Father, a Father that we can boldly approach, uh, a Father that we can uh, 